Hello, hello. This is Psych Adjacent. I'm your host, Dr. Thomas Hughes. I'm very happy to be back for another week. There are no announcements for today, so we're just going to roll right through. With me today is Dr. Austin Perlmutter. Say hello to the audience, Dr. Perlmutter. Hello, everybody. Are you ready to start? I'm so ready. All right, well, let's get going. All right, we're back. I always like to give a very brief introduction so people know who they're listening to. So you are Dr. Austin Perlmutter. You received as, far your as I know. <laughs> you received your medical degree from the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. This is where I met you. So the class of 2015 is in the building. You completed residency in internal medicine at Oregon Health and Science University. You host a podcast titled Get the Stuck Out, which we will talk about very soon. You are the co-author of the book Brainwash, which is on sale now through Amazon and other book retailers. And last but not least, and actually, Austin, I want you to correct me if I'm wrong in what I'm about to say here. It seems to me that you have made the decision to dedicate your life to helping other people make positive decisions for their lives. Is that is that correct? That, that is accurate. That right. is accurate. Well, damn it, Austin, you are the right person for this interview. Okay, so you're in the right spot. So let, let's start off this way. So talk to me about your podcast, Get the Stuck Out. What was the inspiration for that show? Yeah, uh, you know, the, the show grew out of some thoughts I've been having for, for many years. And I think all of us at some point question our frameworks for what we find helpful, useful, true in the way that we do things. And for me, um, when I look at what is going wrong as far as what is keeping people from being happy, healthy people, I look at what's changed in the brain and I look at what is keeping us stuck, specifically what is keeping us stuck in these destructive patterns of decisions, destructive patterns of thought. So. Again, what's actually happening within the brain. And then I look at what is it that we can do to help reverse the process, to get ourselves unstuck. And so I, I think about this at the level of our neuroanatomy. I think about it at the level of our brain cells, our neurotransmitters, our hormones. But I also think about it from the perspective of a psychological stuckness. Because when you look at things like anxiety and depression, some people have characterized those as being stuck in the future, stuck in the past, but really just being stuck in these thought patterns that are, are very damaging to our long-term wellness. So Get the Stuck Out is all about trying to find better answers to what is it that's keeping us stuck and what we can do to get ourselves unstuck. Gotcha. So yeah, uh, you know, you have a, have a boom, I would say a booming social media presence now. So you have <laughs> way more of a presence than I thought because when we went to school, I don't remember you, I don't remember you being the the social media guy. <laughs> would that be would that be an accurate way to to describe you? I, I don't remember you being on social media that much. Do you think your presence now on social media has been beneficial uh, for people that follow you? There's so much that can be said about social media, the pros and cons. And you're right. I mean, I'm far more active on social media now than I ever was in med school. I, I had a, a social account for taking photos of stuff. I remember I'd take like some photos of a sunrise, sunset, call it a day. And 
now I have a Twitter, a Facebook, an Instagram, and most recently a Clubhouse account where I know that you're active as well. And what I love about this is it provides the possibility of interfacing with so many more people than I could on a one-to-one -one type basis. Um, I do believe, I want to say that my presence there has been a positive. I've had so many people reach out and say, I appreciate your message. Um, I was able to apply some of the stuff that you were talking about. And you know, for sure, it's a lot more general advice than what you'd be offering in a one-to-one -one in a, a clinician or a provider's office. But the, the main thing that social media has allowed me to do, especially now during coronavirus, is reach a large audience and be able to bounce my ideas off of other people in a way that may not be possible in person for the foreseeable future. Um, and in a way that gives pretty quick feedback as to what is helpful, what is useful for people. And, you know, what are the things out there that I need to reconsider? Yeah, things have changed so much back in. Uh, so we were in school from 2011 to 2015. I also was not that active. I think I had my Facebook account deleted for about eight years. And, uh, <laughs> That's, that's a long time to not be on Facebook, especially back in those days. So, and for people that are not um, all that outgoing in terms of social media, it's, it's really stepping outside of our, our, our normal comfort zone and comfort level. I, I completely agree with you. And I think in many ways, conventional medical training is kind of uh, opposed to us being more active on social media. And I think there are a variety of reasons for that, but there's this assumption that if you get the right education, if you learn all the material, take the courses, get the degree, that you're just so valuable that you shouldn't have to put yourself out there in that way. People will come to you and people will care about what you say so much that you know they'll listen immediately and you don't have to worry about talking to them after the fact. And that's just not the case anymore. And what you see is there's this huge uh, influence that comes from influencers some of which have medical training, some of who do not, but that when you see how the conversation as it relates to things that are health related is happening, it's driven in large part by these voices on social media. So I you know, almost advocate for physicians, for health providers to be more active on social media. Doesn't mean you have to go out there and say a whole bunch of sensationalist stuff, but I think that in the absence of voices that have, you know, a, an opinion that is more rooted in science, people are only going to be exposed to the things that maybe aren't as helpful, aren't as science-based. Um, so again, this, I, I do remember at one point we were supposed to tweet. We had a University of <laughs> oh Miami thing. We were God. all supposed to tweet. Oh, that was terrible. That was, <laughs> <laughs> that was so terrible. Yeah. And at the time I thought this is silly. I don't want to have a Twitter account, but you right. look at the popularity of things like med Twitter and realize that it allows for information transfer at an incredible speed. And maybe more important, it allows for people who are in the place of you know, delivering health information to see what messages resonate with people, maybe what they've already been exposed to, and then to craft a message that can reach people where they're at. Yeah, I remember what you're talking about, but I think the problem with the way that that was handled was it was, it was just us tweeting. There wasn't any there wasn't any engagement. We just sent out the tweet and there was nothing else after that. Miami just wanted the hashtags. There you go. Exactly. I don't blame them for it, but that's why I was, this is, this is pointless. See what you're doing though. What I've noticed is that you're engaged. You're, you're very active. It's not just one tweet and then you walk away. The, the content that you're putting out there, um, 
it seems to me would be very beneficial for people that read it and watch it. So, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I, mean, I think that's subjective, right? And obviously, I agree with you. Otherwise, I wouldn't be posting it. But <laughs> right. Just, you know, you're in this space too. You're putting out content, and it's one thing to put out a piece of content that everyone already agrees with. You know, the sky is blue. Okay, great. No one's going to engage with that. The only content people are willing to engage with is stuff that has a charge, whatever that charge might be. But we're talking about an emotional charge, sometimes an intellectual charge. So it's tough to, to find things to say that are really internally consistent, but will help people, will engage with people. And there's, I think, a strong tendency to go into the realm of the sensational, um, you know, from the, for the desire of, of getting more followers, likes, whatever. Uh, but yeah, I guess, you know, I, I would just say there's always going to be, you know, some subjectivity in whether the content is valuable. And I hope with what I'm putting out that it is internally consistent and stuff that is true and stuff that is valuable to others. So I'm thinking about that Venn diagram whenever I try to post something. Well, speaking on subjectivity, I would like your, uh, your opinion on what you think people get wrong when it comes to decision-making. Yeah. What are your thoughts? I think people get most things wrong when it comes to decision-making. Um, you know, I think more than anything else in the last couple of years, I mean, I've, I've really tried to redouble my efforts to learn about what's important as it relates to the microbiome and our nutrition and to our hormones and all these other things. But the thing that has stuck out for me the most is that what is understood in the scientific literature about how we make choices is so disconnected from what people perceive to be the way they make choices. And just to break this down for one moment, I think most people believe that the most valuable things in their decision-making are what they know and their willpower. That when they come up to the moment of making a decision, when they're on the spot, right, of making the choice, what matters is how strongly they feel about the right choice and whether they know which is the right choice. And so, you know, you're sitting there at the crossroads, you have option A, you have option B. That's the only thing that matters, what's happening in your brain at that moment. But what literature will show is that 40% of the time when we're making choices, those are unconscious decisions. Those are habitual decisions, things that are below the surface of our conscious mind. So, there are a whole lot of other things to consider here, but I want people just to have this single point, which is if you're trying to take a test and you're trying to get 100% on good decisions and you're writing off 40%, you're starting off with an F. Like there's no way that you're going to do well on making those good choices if you're already writing off 40% of the things that contribute to your decision-making. So again, I know people are kind of aware of habits and people have heard of the work of people like James Clear, Charles Duhigg, BJ Fogg. But when it comes to decision-making in people's everyday life, as well as when it comes to decision-making, I believe in the provider's office, we're not bringing any of this information to the table. Instead, what we're doing is we're telling people, here's what you need to do, or we're telling ourselves, here's what we need to do. And then when we don't do it, we're blaming ourselves for being faulty individuals, for not having enough willpower. And so that creates more stress. And we know that stress in and of itself compromises our ability to make good decisions. Right. So what you get is this feed forward cycle where because we don't know how we make choices, we make bad choices. Because we make bad choices, we blame ourselves. And then that increases the chances that we make more bad choices. And 
we wind up in kind of the reality we see ourselves in right now, which is that so many of the things that contribute to poor physical and mental health um, are, are preventable. Uh, and yet we're incapable of consistently doing the things that will lead us to a better outcome. So what I try to do here is not necessarily tell you this is a good choice or a bad choice. That's subjective. That's up to what's valuable to you. But what I want to do is help people to bridge between the things that they do right now and the goals that they have for the future. I want people to help align those two things so they're consistent with their actions today and their goals for tomorrow. It becomes a pattern making bad decisions, making bad choices. And the hard part is changing those patterns of behavior. And I do a lot of that with therapy. A lot of Yeah, it. I mean, this, this is one of the key tenets of CBT, right? Yep. This yep. is the idea of challenging these kind of underlying below the surface influences on our thinking, on our decision making, on our belief structures. So, I mean, I, I think that's fundamental. And there's there's been a lot of work done in the field of behavioral economics, which has to do with the way that we make choices. And there's this, this famous um, cognitive psychologist named Daniel Kahneman, and he proposed these two systems of thinking. System one, which is what you described, this automatic kind of more habitual unconscious system. And then system two, which is the, the one that weighs the pros and cons of a choice and then makes a decision based on that information. And you know, certainly we need both, right? We need to have some times where we behave uh, with this unconscious automatic process. The problem is that when you look at most of the decisions people make in the modern day, if they rely on that unconscious automatic process, they're going to get things wrong because those are the things that have been wired for bad decisions. And unfortunately, it's just our environment is wired for poor decisions. So if you were to go out and just randomly pick a food choice or randomly pick you know, a way of spending your day, it is most likely that you're going to make bad decisions because that's the way things have been set up. So to your point, I think the problem you know, isn't that the unconscious subconscious influences are in and of themselves so bad in our decision-making. It's that when we are not aware of those, we're basically allowing those programs to be written by what is easiest, what's most available. And those are things like eating a whole bunch of terrible food, spending your day on your cell phone, on social media. Like those are the things that get embedded into those unconscious decisions because of the way that our our brain system pays attention to them. So that's what I try to get people to understand. It's if you don't start making changes to the way your brain is wired, especially those unconscious choices, you're going to wind up probability wise with at least one chronic disease because the decisions that are going to lead you to something like heart disease or diabetes, in some cases, even mental health conditions are, are going to be taken care of by whatever's easiest, whatever's in your environment. So it's it's really trying to bring conscious awareness to the way that we make unconscious decisions that's so important. Do you, uh, do you find yourself having struggles making decisions in your own life? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think all of us have, right? I think it's kind of a universal thing that there's nobody out there who's perfect with their decision-making all the time. Um, I, great examples were in conditions of stress. So in medical school and residency, like I'd be trying to eat healthy. I don't think there's anything new as far as what you've known about me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. But so you wind up first thing in the morning and, you know, you're trying to exercise, eat healthy, and you didn't get as much sleep because you got home late and you find yourself in the hospital and it's like eight o'clock and somebody brought in donuts because 
They're just a nice person, right? So you would say, or I would say, the better decision, better long-term oriented decision is to not eat the donuts. Right. And yet, despite that, I would find myself saying, oh, I just want to try a piece of this glazed whatever. And next thing you know, I've eaten it. And I say, why did I do that? You know, I'm not happier now. It was out of sync with who I wanted to be. And at the time, I was still trapped in this idea of, I just didn't have enough willpower. What's wrong with me? You know, it's like, next time I'll just be stronger, have more mental fortitude. And what I had just described to you about the stress piece, you know, that's part of it. When we're stressed, we make more habitual decisions. We make perhaps worse decisions, but all these other variables that can help me to understand now why I did that. So for example, sleep deficit is associated with making worse choices as it relates to foods. Um, not having access to healthy foods, not having access to nature, not having consistent exercise. These are things that also affect the same parts of the brain. So yes, absolutely. I have struggled in the past with making poor decisions and poor, again, is a subjective term. What I define it as here is that my actions today weren't in alignment with my stated long-term goals. And there really wasn't any major change as far as what I was doing at the time. So I shouldn't have expected that to be any different. I think that's a fundamental fallacy people have is they expect that if they just want something more, they'll change their behavior. It's the problem with New Year's resolutions. People think they go to sleep December, wake up January, and all of a sudden, you know, they're going to exercise every day and going to start eating healthy every day. And it doesn't happen. Oh, no. The reason it doesn't happen is they didn't change any of the variables, right? Just because you said you want to do it doesn't mean your brain and body want to do it. So, you know, I, I think it really is a question of getting the way that your brain and body work in sync with your long-term goals. And there are a lot of ways to do that. Yeah. And I think with, with making changes and better decisions that you have to start off with the understanding that you're most likely not going to be able to make those changes on your first try. <laughs> it's just, that's not how it works. You're probably going to fail. It's that's probably going to happen, but you have to make sure that you forgive yourself. And like, that's a, that's a good way to think about it. Also. I think you said, don't think about it as a poor decision, but one that just did not go according to plan. I think that's the way that you described it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You have to prepare yourself for, uh, for the success and the failures. And, uh, again, that's a part of the, the therapy that I do also, um, getting people ready to make changes and getting people ready for when those changes don't go exactly according to plan. I, I agree with you. And there are so many different frameworks as far as how changes are made. And part of what you're saying, uh, for me, at least alluded to the trans theoretical model of change, basically these steps that lead to ideally sustainable behavior change. But what I really try to get people to do is to make one transition, and that is transition from blaming yourself from, for making bad choices to curiosity as to why it happened. Right. That's the key. It's empathy for yourself. It's curiosity for what happened. Because you know, going back to my example, if I ate something unhealthy and I then led, that led to blaming myself, that doesn't change behavior. And I mean, not to blow this too far out, but when you look at the way that people can consistently change their behavior, this whole kind of blame and punishment model doesn't work that well. Right. And there are a bunch of great examples from the judiciary system that show that when it comes to behaviors, for example, drug use, that putting people in jail doesn't really change those behaviors. So the, the point that I'm trying to make here is that kind of universally we've looked at behavior change 
as a model of failure of a person's self, where it's like, you made a poor choice. That's because you're weak. That's because you need your brain to be punished into the right way of doing things. And I just think that's always going to fail when you contrast it with the benefits that come from bringing in at least a little bit of science. Like it is just shocking to me that we know as much as we do um, about the way that behaviors can be modified. And yet we still will educate a person for a half an hour on why their blood pressure is elevated, but we'll spend no time educating them on how they make decisions. And you know, all the education that we get on how blood pressure is affected, you could talk about different systems in the body, the kidneys, the heart, the blood vessels. At the end of the day, I'm telling a patient if their blood pressure is high, you know, some combination of things, exercise, uh, lose some weight, uh, eat healthier, and then at some point take a pill, right? Those are the interventions I give them. So the problem isn't necessarily that I, I didn't tell them why it's important for them to lower their blood pressure. Every time it's increased risk of stroke, increased risk of heart attack, increased risk of a variety of other problems. The problem isn't that they don't know why it's important. The problem is they're not capable of making those behavior changes. So I was just looking at some interesting research on people who had had uh, open heart surgery. And so in this case, coronary artery bypass graft, which is, I don't know if you remember, it's a pretty sick, I don't know if you were in there to it's see intense. those. It's intense. It's intense. It's an intense <laughs> thing, right? You're literally cracking open the chest and then wiring it back together. So these are people who have severe heart disease, who have undergone open heart surgery, and they tell people afterwards, here are the things we recommend as far as the dietary modifications. There's really no instance in which somebody, I think, needs more evidence that they need to make a change. You literally just had open heart surgery, and yet people still don't make the dietary changes. So then you think to yourself, well, if they can't do it, why would I expect somebody with prediabetes to change their diet? Like, why would they be more motivated than the person who had open heart surgery? And then I think, well, do cardiologists even follow these dietary recommendations? Shocker, they don't. <laughs> so it's not this problem where it's we don't know the information. It's the problem with follow through. And that's what I think we're really getting wrong in this whole thing. We're looking at way too far downstream as far as the outcomes where we need to be focused on the upstream variable, which again, from my perspective, I think is kind of universal across mental health and other chronic diseases, which is what is happening in the brain at the level of our hormones, the level of our neurotransmitters, the level of our immune cells. And can we better understand how we can influence those variables so we can get to better outcomes uh, as it relates to cognition, decision-making, than what we're tending to do, which is, to rely on interventions that people aren't going to stick to anyway. Yeah, you, you just gave us a very intensive example of, you know, how hard it is to make change. Despite open heart surgery, some people still go back to eating the wrong things, not exercising. It still happens. So tell me this. What do you think is or what do you think are? Because if there's multiples, you can you can tell me those also. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges that Americans uh, have to overcome when it comes to decision making? Right. So I think this gets back to the question of um, how we're making decisions and, and how many of those decisions are really not these conscious choices. Um, th there's that piece and then there's the instant gratification piece. So let's start with the unconscious piece. If we consider that 40-ish percent of our choices are habitual 
And we also consider that our brains, our bodies are going to do what is easiest. And you ask, what is easiest? The answer is eat junk food, spend your day in front of a monitor, um, and don't really look after yourself. So we've kind of set people up for poor unconscious decision-making as it relates to the environment that we live in today. Most Americans are overweight or obese. It's not surprising because the environment is set up in such a way that makes that the most likely outcome. You're saying because so it's think, so easy to get access to all of these. It's, and it's things. not just easy to get access to it. It's also easy not to exercise. Okay. Like yeah. Everyone's always saying you need to exercise. The human body doesn't want to exercise. It's not like hunter gatherers evolved to say, hey, I'm just going to burn some calories because why not? Like they're, they were evolved to save calories whenever possible. So the body is set up in such a way that says, why would I not store this extra fat? This seems like a good investment in my future so that if things get bad at some point, I have extra calories on hand, extra fat on hand that I can burn for energy. So again, part of it is the unconscious kind of environmental setup that conditions us to make these poor unconscious choices. But the other part that I think is really damaging is that there are these circuits in the brain that are especially sensitive to certain types of inputs. And we don't have to get too technical on this, but there's uh, something called a variable ratio schedule, which is uh, a term that came out of um, early kind of behavioral studies. And what it means is basically the slot machine effect. It's that our brains pay attention when they get variable rewards. So if I was to give you, uh, you know, a, a slot machine and you pulled that lever and you got two out of the three things, you would think that the brain could say, oh, well, that was a loss. Therefore, I should treat it as such and not necessarily be as interested in playing again. But when you get two sometimes, three sometimes, and one other times, or these are the things that our brain says, oh my gosh, I can't get enough of it. So this is why people are so incredibly sensitive to things like slot machines, things like gambling. It's because it activates the dopamine circuit in the brain that makes us pay extra attention and actually solidifies those behaviors. So then you take that and basically throw it out to what we're doing in social media, which is, you know, you open your Instagram, sometimes there are some likes, sometimes there's some messages, other times there aren't. You open your email, sometimes there are some messages, sometimes there aren't. You throw these variable rewards all over the place and our brains can't help but pay attention. So we, we tend to gravitate towards these uh, things that are variable as well as in general, things that are allowing us to achieve instant gratification. So whether that's uh, like a dating app or buying stuff on Amazon, our brains love to have that immediate thought and then have the immediate kind of outcome. Why that's important is because we are spending so much of our time making these impulsive instant gratification type decisions. Many of these lead to mindlessness and it comes at the expense of mindfulness. So there are kind of two things there to tease apart. One is we're making these impulsive instant gratification decisions which tend to be bad choices as far as do they optimize for our health? Do they optimize for our financial stability? Are they good for our relationships? Um, so again, the instant gratification tends not to be the type of decision that's actually good for us. Um, but the other piece there is that it kind of wires our brains such that we're, we're not necessarily getting the inputs that we need to engage in reflective thinking, engage in empathy. And instead we're wiring our brains to make impulsive choices, the higher likelihood. 
Right. And again, we don't have to keep going into the science too much there, but I wanted to give people one more idea, which is your brain is always wiring itself based on what you put in. This is a concept called neuroplasticity. So if you're putting in unhealthy inputs, your brain is going to wire itself in a way that will continue to take in those unhealthy inputs. Same thing, vice versa, right? With healthy inputs. Mm -hmm. But so when everything you're taking in is kind of this instant gratification, mindless content, your brain is going to reflect that. Your actions are going to reflect that. So it's just like the food you eat. If you want to have a healthy body, you want to put in healthy food. If you want to have a healthy body, a healthy mind, you got to think about all of the inputs coming in, whether that's social media, the news you engage in, the relationships that you keep, um, all of it kind of funnels into the brain and changes the wiring. Do you think that the world would have been better off without social media? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. It's Thomas. At this point in the conversation, we will take a short break. For the non-YouTubers, you should know that Dr. Perlmutter currently has a priceless look on his face while thinking about whether we'd be better off without social media. <laughs> Stay tuned for his answer and the rest of our discussion. I'll see y'all next week.